Welcome to The Real Enneagram, A Spiritual Quest, brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. Join us as we experience the vital teachings of Enneagram expert Dr. Joseph Howell, clinical psychologist and author of Becoming Conscious, The Enneagram's Forgotten Passageway. Relax as you are taken beyond personality typing to The Real Enneagram, The Spiritual Development of the Soul. Welcome back to a podcast entitled The Real Enneagram. A Spiritual Quest. Sponsored by the Institute for Conscious Being. And today we have a special guest with us. Of course, we have Dr. Joseph Howell and myself, Erica Jobes, his sidekick. And then today we also have Roger Conville. Welcome, Roger. Glad to be here. Roger is one of my favorite people. We uh, watch football together, and um, he is one of my favorite. He self-identifies as an ego type 7, and so he often lives into his 8-wing, which is really hysterical to watch, and especially during football games. And so uh, we're just glad you're here with us today. Glad to be here. I wanted to, before we get started, I wanted to let you guys know, our listeners, that if you have any questions or comments about our subject material or you have anything you would like to hear more about, you can email us at therealenneagram at gmail.com. And so we would love to get an email from you uh, to, you know, you can make a comment, ask a question, just anything. We'd love to hear from you. So I just wanted to put that out there. And so today, Dr. Howell, we're continuing our discussion of the soul child. Yes, and um, this will be a different flavor because uh, Roger, our guest today, has been involved in Enneagram studies for about 25 years, and he is a faculty member of the Institute for Conscious Being and also is one of the people who conducts awakenings and is very involved in the training of people who are getting a certification in the spirituality of the Enneagram. So I'm very um, eager to hear what Roger has to say today about his soul child and how over these years he has been able to integrate it. Yes, I'm excited to hear about this too. He's got a wealth of knowledge. So our first question for you, Roger, is uh, can you just tell us briefly how you began 25 plus years ago? We don't want to give away your age because you're such a young looking man. Um, How you kind of began to learn about the Enneagram and how you met Joe. Yeah, it... It happened through another activity uh, that that Joe and I have been involved in for for low plus twenty five years, something called Curcio, and it was uh, participation in a Curcio event that led to Joe and Lark and I meeting, and from that that spun into oh, and what's that long odd word mm-hmm. Enneagram. And then uh, we were introduced to Richard Rohr's book, Understanding the Enneagram. And uh, it, it began to open up the doors to things in life that I had no idea of. 
Why? What? What was going on with you at that time that made you so interested in the Enneagram? Life, um, a lot of life at that point in time. Um, much like being on a uh, stationary bicycle, um, spinning and, your wheels, so to speak, pedaling harder and not really getting any further along. Mm-hmm. Um, the first before Joe actually, and this is for folks. There's always a little crack that help, that uh, can help get you moving in a direction that you need to go into. And that little crack for me was the book, The Road Less Traveled. And that just, it got me thinking. And I remember in my 40s thinking, and that'll give you an idea of my age, that the world has definite, consistent messages to us. And I began to realize that to live successfully, just almost without exception, that if the world says to do this, you really should be doing that. (laughs) And that was something that began to be more and more real to me and uh, began to define the way I had began making decisions in the way that I'd like to live my life. So when you found the Enneagram, you thought this might be something that would help you live life a little bit better? I, I don't, yeah, there was no question about that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was that path. Mm-hmm. It was the, um, the way to understanding uh, ways of um, coming to terms with issues and with matters that were very confusing and were very... Uh, uh, sometimes discombobulating. Sure. How long had you been familiar with the Enneagram? I guess at the time you realized that you were an ego type seven. How long did you know that you were that ego type before you realized that there was an essence, that there was something deeper inside? Quite some while. Um, really, all I knew and had any understanding of was my ego type seven, and so that was the uh, the bon vivant, mm-hmm. and and I was I was a flaming bon vivant, and uh, it was it was easy easily identifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think the ego type sevens typically have a difficult <laughs> time in self identifying, mm-hmm. uh, b- because one thing you know. Like Joe says in his uh, conferences, he says, you don't want to kill me, I'm happy. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when you're the guy that's having the fun and and people are drawn to you, Mm -hmm. everybody's having a good time and they're likely not to turn on you. True. And so when when did you first discover that there was a soul child, that there was an essence, something much deeper inside? That's been fairly recent. It's been in the last five years. And then increasingly so as going through, I've been through the scholars program and the master's program. And that's really where you begin to get a really deeper understanding of, of who you truly are in your essence. Who are, who are you truly in your essence? 
Well, I'm not sure what name I am in my essence. Uh, you know, Bill. <laughs> but I integrate to the Ego Type 5. And uh, you had someone on a previous podcast, Jessica, I believe it was. Yeah. And she talked about two different times in her life, uh, around age three or four, and then come to understand that it was around age 10 or 11 where she really had that shift. transition, the shift. And I had experienced the time in my front yard when I was four or five. And it was all centered around nature. It was all centered around the wild cherry tree in the front yard and the, the big black wood ants going up and down that cherry tree and the birds, and the fruit that the birds would eat. But I was just watching and observing all that and I was, I was one with it. You're in your essence at the five. I was in my essence, sure was. However, there's more to it. And just in the last couple of nights, in fact, it was two nights ago, I was sitting on our deck and I revisited a very vivid image that I experienced as a young person. Not much older than the time I was just talking about. And it was going through, going into our city on a main thoroughfare. And I had noticed the shotgun houses along this major thoroughfare. And these weren't well-kempt homes. They were not painted. They had some paint on them, but they were more unpainted than painted. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I did know the shape of the home. I knew that there was a front door and a front porch and that there was a back stoop. And during the holiday season, at some point when I was very young, I remember having almost an out-of-body experience. And the out-of-body experience was about delivering uh, freshly cooked, beautiful pie and delivering it secretively mm -hmm. to the back stoop of that house and getting such pleasure from that. Mm -hmm. Them not knowing, but when that person that lived in the house came out and found that pie and in my image they found the pie and when they found it they knew that somebody that they didn't know loved them and it was just very profound very good so that I suppose what one of the things I'm receiving from that is that is your fiveness of your soul child could you say more about that? I, I believe it is my fiveness of, of my soul child. Um, I did not want to have to have interaction. It was private. It was something I wanted to do that I 
felt like I should do for that person that I did not know, for that person who did not know me, but that it would be a gift. And they would know that they were loved. So, and you've just learned in the last five or six years that that where you find true joy and where you feel like you are truly yourself is at the healthy place of the ego type five. And how does that help you? How are you experiencing that now? In relationship, uh, it always comes down to the difference between what someone else can or might do for me and what I can do for the other person. That seems to be where that falls and that I'm I'm looking for that thing to do for the other person. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not particularly tuned in to what somebody might be able to do for me. So I've known you now for for some years. And I've seen that ego type seven. You're just a lot of fun to be around. We always have a good time. But I'm remembering a story when we went to on a faculty retreat to Sacred Heart. When was that? January of this year? It was November. It was winter time, it felt like. Wasn't it cold? It was. Chilly. Okay. So it was chilly. It was cold, rainy, not great weather. And we went uh, to Sacred Heart. Uh, the faculty did. It was pretty bleak outside. And I remember we were walking down the sidewalk and you noticed this little bitty tiny violet. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And I remember looking down and thinking, oh, wow, there's color, you know, because everything else was so bleak. And at that moment, I remember thinking, there he is, there it is, there's Rogers Five, because you, you had to have been so observant in that moment. And not necessarily in that average to unhealthy seven, which is kind of jumping around and kind of a little bit over, all over the place. Does that resonate? Completely. Mm-hmm. It sure does. Um, noticing those things in nature and then what it spins off to is that you begin to notice things about other people, their qualities, their gifts. But... But when you tune into nature, it's all around us. Uh, in all the seasons, just in different ways and in different forms. But it's wonderful to be in that quiet space in a relationship where you notice those gifts and the things that make the other person special. Mm-hmm. And it makes the relationships that much deeper mm-hmm. and more meaningful. One of the interesting things I think about the Enneagram is even for people who don't know the vocabulary and don't know the system, they still experience the truth of it. And, you know, one of the things about you, Roger, is whenever somebody is talking to them, talking to you, you always give them your undivided attention. There's never, you know, that your eyes don't glance off past me when we're talking. I never think that there's somewhere else you'd rather be or that you're in a hurry or whatever. You just have a genuine interest when people are talking to you. And we go to conferences and things, you're always off to the side and somebody is spilling their heart. That's true, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, 
And if you don't mind, I can spin that mm -hmm. into something else that's just happened. Um, and it goes back to, uh, to ego, but it's a different kind of ego uh, description. Uh, there was a lady in our Mississippi conference who self-identified as a seven. And she and I, in conversation over the dinner table, we had two or maybe three meals together, and we would pick up the same conversation, but we were beginning to understand that we experienced our ego type seven in a similar way. And it wasn't the Disneyland way. Really? Mm -mm. It was relationship. She described it just like I have described it. And the, the richness comes the joy of giving yourself to someone else and allowing them to reciprocate and give themselves to you. But it was a really great time for her. She she told me a lot about mm -hmm. herself, and I was glad to hear it. Mm -hmm. And your soul's connected. We sure did. That is interesting. With Jessica last week, the holy ideas came up. This week, because of what you just said, the subtypes have come up, which... There are three of, and one of them is the social subtype that is found in every egotype, as well as the sexual syntony and also the self-preservation. And we're going to have some podcasts on these instinctual subtypes later. So the two of you probably both were egotype sevens and had that social subtype, and so you felt a really special connection there. We did. We did. And, uh, and I think that's another way to, to self-identify. And I think with time, uh, I think ICB will be able to accommodate that mm -hmm. and uh, just learn how enable folks coming to us to have the opportunity to more clearly identify. So, and, and I believe it's important. I believe it's important when you have nine energies with wings. You know, we use the example of the stadium and the portals. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a different view and we see things differently. And people see us differently depending upon where we find our seat in that stadium. And so... Uh, uh, I believe that will be the case, and uh, it, it's just good to, and with time and with more people, more contact, more interaction, you discover these things. That's where the discovery seems to happen. And that, that example you're speaking of, the, the stadium and the portal Joe talks about, uh, you know, it's like there's a large stadium and there are you know when you go to a big football game you go through portal a or b or c or through k and then there are hundreds of seats within that particular portal and he describes the nine energies of the ego types being like one of those portals so where i'm in i identify as an ego type eight i might go into that ego type eight portal i might sit in seat one but another eight might sit in seat 300. So we look very different, but we all we enter through that same portal. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. And it's interesting how 
um, Roger just put it, that not only do we see things differently, but the people standing down on the ground on the football field see us differently. And that might have been one of my biggest ahas as an ego type eight. I think a lot of times we think everybody should see things the way we do and we can't understand why people can't be more decisive and get things done and just move along. Let's just move on. We've done it, let's move on. And and then as and then to realize that there are, you know, nine different ways of seeing and moving and being in the world, that allows com- compassion to come in for the ego type 8 who often doesn't look very compassionate. That's exactly right. It's it's uh, it's re- reciprocal in many ways. I think that's a word that that uh, that often does come into play. The uh, reciprocity, the giving and the receiving. Mm-hmm. And, and our souls don't fight. No, the the soul really doesn't even have a dog in the fight. Um, what's beautiful is that once people understand their ego type, they can then find the soul child underneath it, which adds such a real depth to a person's understanding and their qualities and their access to energy that is beyond their own energy. It's access to divine energy when one can access the divine within them. For me, for the ego type 8, for me to learn that at my soul that I, I'm just a very nurturing, compassionate person allows me uh, every single day in the work that I do to allow myself to be vulnerable and allow myself to feel the feelings that otherwise I wouldn't allow myself to feel and to experience emotion that often I would scoff at and say, put that over here, we've got work to do, you know. How does the uh, essence at the five feel for you? The essence at the five um, feels like it's where where the, the five average done healthy might go inside and be alone. The when I go to my five, I'm almost always with someone, and it's it's in communion. It's it's in conversation. Uh, hopefully, coffee in the morning or beer in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's the way that's the way that takes shape. I think that's wonderfully put, and um, you can sense a peace in Roger's voice, a peace in his countenance, because this is somebody who has been integrating for years and using the map of the Enneagram to actually, um, well, uh, one can say not only integrate, but restore, restore, restore our soul. Mm-hmm. That's good. So, at your when you're in your ego seven, and what what keys you or what triggers you to understand that you need to step back and that you need to take a moment to get back on track when when you're feeling unhealthy in in the seven. What does that look like? More than likely, it's when I've gone to my eight wing. <laughs> When I realize suddenly that oh, I, I may I may need to pull back, 
Usually not. Usually it's pretty surgical and quick, and then it's gone. But not so much with a seven. Uh, every, but but the way that it 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 would happen is that I would have that sense almost of embarrassment. I'd almost that was too much. That, that was more than was needed mm-hmm. at that time for that moment, and and uh, and then I let it go. So when you feel like you're at the average to unhealthy seven, you feel a sense of being if there's just too much, that there of, of yes. overwhelming someone else. Yes, yes, okay. that it was just too much. And so I know exactly how that feels <laughs> because I think as an ego type eight, I often come across as too much. So I understand how that feels. And then when when you feel that trigger, what what do you do to move towards essence? Physiologically, I. I relax. Uh, mentally, there's a mental part of it. The, the mental part is, is just recognizing that, that I don't need to do anything. I don't, know, I don't need to do anything at all. A little bit like what Jessica talked about last week, that feeling of being frantic and needing to do and, and that sort of thing, and just pull back from that and relax. What spiritual practice have you found to be really helpful for you? Morning walk, um, some uh, scripture reading, um, meditations in the evening. Uh, nothing too heavy duty, but but uh, things that are helpful mm-hmm. and that uh, are built in throughout the day. Well, I love that you mentioned that they're not too heavy. I think sometimes people think when you say spiritual practice that you have to get in a lotus pose for three hours uh, and chant. And I don't know that that is what you have to do to be healthy. I think sometimes it's just taking just taking a break and sitting back from life for a few minutes, whether it be through a morning walk, a nature walk, uh, just heart breathing, uh, which is one of the things that we teach in our training or through meditation or uh, that sort of thing. And it doesn't have to be hours. It doesn't have to take hours, you know, 15 to 20 minutes might be all you need just to get reset. That's right. That's right. And and I would not be satisfied if, if, if something caused me pain. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> That's no fun. Yes, and, and, you know, spiritual practice added to that what Roger said. I couldn't agree more. But is an openness throughout the day to the unusual, the, um, the um, upsets, the glitches, the, the things that seem to delay or block us are good, uh, possibly ways that we can become more alert to what is being what's arising in that moment i remember i last week um i was in my office and um was facing a very difficult family meeting um it was a family that has gone through a tremendous amount of uh of difficulties uh some terrible woundings um of children and um and when the family came in uh 
one of the parents said to me, uh, Dr. Howell, what are you doing? And I had inadvertently looked over their heads out the window because the cloud that was passing by was in the shape of a heart, a distinct shape of a heart. Well, for me, that meant everything because this meeting was going to be a two-hour long, very difficult meeting that was going to take a lot of my soul. And when I saw that cloud and then pointed it out to the rest of the family, since you wanted to know, uh, they all stood up to look out the window to see the cloud. And that cloud set the tone for the meeting in a way that no, I could never have done myself. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, it, I've not told that. I'm, I'm glad. Well, that's just one of my most recent. Uh, they happen all the time. Mm-hmm. So an openness during the day. To the divine. Mm-hmm. That's part of the spiritual practice. And lots of times it comes in glitches. Mm-hmm. And in things that seem to delay or upset or postpone or um, mess things up. But mm-hmm. that's when to be especially attuned. Mm-hmm. Because when things are always going smoothly, we can be sleepwalking through life. And when there are glitches, those are little signs that help us wake up. Well, I think that's a great place to end this podcast. So I want to thank you, Roger, for joining us. It was great being here with you and also you, Dr. Howell. And we want to invite you again to send any questions or comments to the real Enneagram at gmail.com. We also would like to invite you to our website, uh, theicb.org. If you want to look up uh, our upcoming conferences or training schedules, you can do so there. Thank you for joining us today. We're really honored that you've yeah. taken the time to listen. And we look forward to, to meeting some of our listeners and and getting feedback from you. So until next week. Thank you for being with us today. Check out our website at www.theicb.org. That's T-H-E-I-C-B dot O-R-G. If you have questions you would like to have answered on this podcast, just email us at the address on our website, theicb.org, under Contacts. And if you would like to attend one of the conferences or other events of the Institute for Conscious Being, you will find these presentations on our website under Events.